from our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Welcome to our special Louisiana Eats podcast series, Quick Bites. I'm Poppy Tooker. Love that chicken from Popeye's. It's a good guess that if you love Louisiana food, you're a Popeye's lover too. The company that has now grown to over 3,000 stores, stretching from one end of the globe to the other, all started right here in New Orleans. Today, Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen includes locations in more than 30 countries. You'll find that chicken in London, Sri Lanka, the Philippines. There's over a dozen Popeyes in Jamaica, for goodness sake. But none of that would be possible if it weren't for the visionary, one-of-a-kind powerhouse that was Al Copeland. His son, Al Jr., recently memorialized his father in a cookbook memoir entitled Secrets of a Tastemaker written by Chris Rose, Kit Wall, and the Copeland family. As Chris Rose aptly put it, Al was New Orleans' Elvis, our Dorian Gray, our great Gadsby. Unabashedly, the book tells it all. Interspersed with Copeland restaurant and family recipes is the whole story, from Al's humble beginnings through the race boats, the marriages, the Christmas lights, the church's chicken bankruptcy, and his triumph with diversified foods, the company still responsible for producing his secret formulas today. When Al Jr. and I sat down to talk, I began by asking what motivated him to write the book. Quite honestly, I've been working on the book for about eight years, and it, it hasn't been a primary focus, but it's been a side focus as we you know run the businesses, and uh, uh, just very excited. I wanted it to be super special, uh, super first class, and uh, and and at the at the end of the day, I think it really is. Gosh, it's really been your life's work. It was your first job. You started at the spice plant at 12, and you were in a store by 14. Tell me about that. <laughs> That's right. Well, Popeye's was founded, unfortunately, I'm going to tell my age, but Popeye's was founded in 1972. I was nine years old. And so I, I, I did some, some work, you know, on the weekends or whatever in the restaurant as it was founded. And uh, one of the stories there that's pretty interesting is we used to come home from school and take the labels off of some of the spices and the breadings so that for the first restaurant even the very beginning it was a secret recipe to go to that to go to that first number one store and uh, I ended up going to work at 14 to store three it was actually called 3a because the first store was a small inline store and it was so busy that we had to move it to a larger location so we call it 3a and uh, my first job, believe it or not, in the restaurant was baking biscuits. It's when the biscuits first came out. The first year the best biscuits came out. Well, Al, it sounds like that was an exaggeration that uh, your first job was when you were 12. If when the business started and you were nine, you were working at home. So the mm -hmm. truth is you were there putting an effort in from the very beginning. That's right. I think I even drove a nail in the first building. <laughs> and, and not only that, but... You also cite in the book about um, 
how you had to eat a lot of very bad food for your dad to work out all of his secret recipes. He spent a lot of years putting together the recipe. And it's a very interesting story in the book about how this all came about. But uh, when he started testing chicken recipes, uh, he my mother would set him up. Uh, he'd come home from working in a donut business, and she'd have the kitchen set up. She'd have the flour. She'd have the chicken. And they'd mix a couple of different seasonings, and he'd give us some direction, and they would start frying. And if we were... If I was still up and not sleeping, uh, they would feed us some of the chicken. And, uh, yeah, we tasted some pretty rough stuff there oh. in, the, in the beginning. Well, I, I guess the smell of chicken frying is like a lullaby to you, huh? That it is. <laughs> I, I ate fried chicken for seven years of my life, six days a week. Oh. And I'm still here to talk about it. Truly, at its inception, and even still today in so many ways, this is a Copeland family business. His brother Gil gifted him with a Tasty Donuts franchise when he married your mom. So let's talk about the family angle of that. Um, well, the beginning of family actually started on the LeCompte side, my mother's side of the family, where the book really takes you through the origin of it, where they hunt what they ate, they grew from the garden, uh, they had uh, the spices and all of the wonderful flavors came from that side of the family. Uh, my father, you know, quite honestly thought you needed to eat to live, you know, and that, that was just, just a, a requirement to, to get by to the next day, and it really wasn't that important, but he found it important as he met my mother and they and they got married and they had the relationship and it built and he he took real interest in to this type of cooking and as he was in the donut business he started to you know look play with this chicken recipe uh and yeah and so gilbert had started uh, tasty donuts back in the day and he had then uh offered a free franchise fee my dad paid for the entire restaurant and to open it but he put his life savings, everything he could, he'd worked for at Schwegman's and along the way uh, up to open this little donut shop. And he worked 18 hours a day, uh, you know, seven days a week. For and this, 10 years before the first Popeyes. That he did. That's astounding. See, I never realized he put in that decade at the donut shop before the fried chicken came along. The name of the book, Secrets of a Tastemaker, you know... It, your family is really the root of the flavor. And the fact that it was your mama's family, the, um, the Cajun Comos and the LeCompes, that really provided your father with the taste excitement he needed mm -hmm. to get this thing rolling. Well, what he realized early on is differentiating yourself from others would be important in business. And that was an important fact uh, for him to identify with. And he knew New Orleans, he learned that New Orleans was famous for flavors and food. And he saw it really happening in the kitchens every day at my grandparents' house. And uh, as he started to pursue this chicken business, it became, you know, the direction to proceed where, you know, it had this unique product. And that's where it started. It didn't, you know, initially go that way, as you may know, but uh, he ended up obviously getting the Popeyes. You know, it's so funny that um, he didn't, the, the great tastemaker, at least the first time in, didn't trust his taste buds enough 
to go with that spicy flavor that he had developed and was such a ticket. Somehow he thought it might be too spicy, and that was that was his first run at this. It, what was the name of that first business before Popeye's? It was called Chicken on the Run, and it's an interesting story because uh, he wanted to do it. Uh, but he's also one of the things that's made him so successful is he's extremely, you know, connected to the community and, and is a great common sense kind of guy, a street guy and understands, you know, common sense. And when the some of his advisors, his brother and some team got a chance to taste the chicken for the first time, they said, this is fantastic chicken. It's spicy. And the problem is, back in that day, fried chicken business was uh, just a storefront. There were no seats and there were no drive throughs that existed in the country. Hmm. And so fried chicken was equal to pizza as it was a take-home for the family type of product. And the common sense was that this is a great product, but kids won't eat it. And fried chicken is for families. So, you know, great idea, but I don't think it'll sell. And so we opened, uh, he opened a concept. He kind of went off of a Kentucky Fried Chicken knockoff and, and said, well, okay, well, that, make, that makes sense. He, he altered the recipe and he tried something uh, and he opened it as uh, chicken on the run. <laughs> well, there are so many gifts that you're giving everybody mm-hmm. in your beautiful book. Your dad was a business genius with a 10th grade education, so his street smarts really served him well. And I love the references to all of Al's rules. Mm -hmm. Um, Number one, start out with determination. Love that one. Goodness knows he certainly had determination. But number two, I love it too. You've either got to be the best or not do it at all. That's right. He was so smart, that third rule to know uh, have a roadmap when you start out mm-hmm. because he certainly figured out where he wanted to go and then he made that map about how to get there. That's right. No, he always had a plan. He actually uh, drafted it on the back of a napkin or uh, a piece of paper, but it was always just pretty scratchy, but it was always like he'd, he'd plan his vision. He'd take his vision and put it on paper. No one else could put this vision on paper. It was only his <laughs> vision of how he was going to proceed. Your dad was smart, smart with money. Mm-hmm. And he researched uh, to figure out that the national average of chicken, fried chicken chains at the time was $5,000. That's right. Uh, $5,000 a week? A week. And so then he knew that his break-even number was $2,000. That's right. But it took him just a couple of weeks to get there, right? Yeah, I think uh, the story goes it was like uh, $1,800, and then he he got to uh, the 2000 and then the 2200 and it just continued to build and he he had said that he would give it 3 weeks and if it didn't break the break even he would close it and it it was building and on the third week it, it broke it and then he he continued to develop from there thank god and then on his roadmap his his plan was 
as soon as he was at that national average, he was going to open three in a row. And he managed to pull that off in 10 months. He sure did. Where were those stores? He uh, The second store was on Williams Boulevard. The third one was on Veterans Highway. And then the fourth one was on Chef Highway. His standards. His standards were exacting, and he never let up. Um, the thing that was so different about Popeye's was the holding time and the oil changes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and the seasoning. You know, um, oh, he, he developed. I mean, well, when I was in a uh, spice plant making spices and packing spices, uh, we, we had to package the perfect amount of spice for one half case of chicken. And so you would uh, you would season that so it would have the exact amount exact amount of seasoning for the right amount of chicken. And if the weight of the chicken went up, you had to put more seasoning. But yeah, it it was all perfectly measured from the very very beginning. Um, and you're right about the holding time. Um, when when uh, Chicken on the Run was founded, it had a, a slogan, and it was. It was so fast you get your chicken with your change. And it, so the goal was to give the customer, the, to go through the transaction, take the order, give them, the, by the time they got the change, they were able to get their chicken. So speed was important and freshness was very important. Uh, we always had uh, either a byproduct of the, for the chicken or whatever, but 30 minutes was the rule. After 30 minutes, you had to drive home, you had to set it up at home, and it was gonna be cold by the time you ate it if, we, if it got past that holding time. You mentioned pulling the labels off as a little boy, and that seasoning blend is really the thing Tell us a little bit about the early secrecy. You know, he he eventually, pretty early on, built those company headquarters on Clearview. And out there at Diversified Seasonings, I don't think anybody's right hand knew what the left hand was doing except for Al. Tell us about that secrecy. It always was a secret, and that was the key uh, from the garage in our house to um, I think there was a, a warehouse on Delaware Street in Kenner. And then we moved to, and we were there for a long time, but we had our offices and our manufacturing took place on Airline Highway. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, I don't remember the exact address exactly, but we had a Popeyes right in front of it. It was the 12th Popeyes on, it was number 12 Popeyes and right behind it. So we had a Popeyes in front of the office and then also the manufacturing plant behind it all on the same property. And it was like that for many, many years until we outgrew it. And then we built the manufacturing plant uh, on off of LNA Road and now it's in Mandisville. But to your point there is that uh, he had a, a seasoning crew and uh, that would that could do certain parts of it, but the, and then there was a procurement crew that didn't do any of the blending or any of the recipes. So they didn't really know what, what it was being used for. They knew we were buying an ingredient and they, and they knew it'd be shipped here. That's all they had to do. And then they had the people who were putting it together and they were just calling it an ingredient, a 1,000 or 2,000 or whatever the numbers were, and they're putting so much of this and so much of that. They didn't, really, they didn't even know what it was. And so all that was being put together, and uh, same thing with the batter and the same thing with seasonings and, and everything else that was created. Chicken on the Run morphed into Popeye's. Now, your dad always claimed 
that that was Popeye Doyle from the French Connection and not Popeye the Sailor Man. How did the Sailor Man end up having to be on helicopters and boats and all of that? Well, uh, he did get the name from the movie The French Connection. Um, Popeye Dora was the was the tough guy in the movie, uh, and he leaned over to my mother and said, I think I want to name it Popeye. She was in search of the name. She said, you're crazy. Popeye's eat spinach, not chicken. <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, as he thought through the movie, he just caught it thinking about it. He said, no, because this is going to be a spicy chicken recipe, and it's going to be so spicy it's going to pop your eyes. So it had a, a kind of a different meaning. It was a, it was attempting to co- communicate, but Popeyes was a recognizable character. Uh, well, this went on for a little while until uh, King's Features took notice, who was uh, has control of the Popeyes character, and they came uh, with a cease and desist letter, and so it forced us to have to make a deal with them with Popeyes, um, and when we made that deal. Uh, they, he did make a deal with them, and, and and included in that deal was the use of the characters. So then Popeye, the character, had become a fixture in Popeye's The Fried Chicken. One of the things he was superstitious about was dropping that first batch of chicken in the fryer at every new store. That's right. Yeah, um, I guess I kind of paid for the helicopter. But uh, he's uh, no, he, he, he was a superstitious guy. And if he had if something that kind of worked, uh, he wanted to keep that pattern. And, and uh, dropping the first drop of chicken in the restaurants was something that he did for quite some time. He felt like that was part of his success. Well, Al, we talked about the sound and the smell of frying chicken being a lullaby for you. Let's talk about your Christmas carol. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like to live in that house? Yes, it was pretty crazy. Uh, there was a lot going on there in preparation for that uh, every year. And um, a lot of the schools and uh, participated, neighbors participated, uh, love-hate thing, as you know. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, we um, Christmas was very interesting. It was very special. And, you know, it comes from my father being a child and going to the old Centennial House and uh, and seeing how special it was. And he was mesmerized by it and said, if I ever get enough money or make enough money, I'm going to do this at my house. And uh, he loved, he lived up to that. I mean, he was that kind of guy. You know, he put his mind to it, and he, he made a commitment to himself, and and he did it. And not only did he do it, but he did it in the very big way. In the Al Copeland way. Yes. Everything bigger than life, over the top. How old were you when uh, the Christmas commotion started? God, it feels like you know we moved on, moved to False Drive. I can't even remember what year that was. And and it, as a, as a kid growing up, it, it felt like uh, every year it was just a thing. I mean, Christmas was always big in our house, even when I was young, and we didn't live in that house. Uh, he just it was a special time for him. You could tell, and he made it special for us. Uh, and uh, what was great about that is 
the, the way he embraced the community. Uh, he would go out, we'd go out with stuffed animals, and uh, there'd be certain nights we were invited to come over. Like, even as I grew up, he'd say, come on over, bring all the kids, let's go out, we're going to pass out you know, stuffed animals and things to the, to, the, to the people passing the house. And the lines are backed up past West Esplanade for miles you know, to, to come see the house, and he's out there greeting the cars, and we had popcorn, and just just made it as fun carols we had snowflakes and it was it was it's always a big deal you know you mentioned giving away toys your dad was so generous and a lot of his true generosity nobody ever saw or heard about we did what was called a secret santa and the only people who knew about it were the people who worked at popeyes but every year we would um, find a number of church groups and and get very some low-income families really low income that really weren't going to have any type of Christmas whatsoever no Christmas tree uh, no presents uh, they were lucky enough to get by with food and clothes that they had on a table and a, and a house to live in or some type of place to live covered in, oh, a roof over their head and uh, what he wanted to do was have this secret Santa mission where he had um, it was Hundreds of Santa Clauses that would uh, that would come in, and we'd have them uh, dress up, and and we'd give them these gifts and give them these addresses, and they were to go to these homes uh, anonymously and just knock on their door with their gifts, and they were all labeled with the kids' names on them, oh. and uh, each of the kid he called the, the Santa Claus would call them out by name and hand them the gifts at the door, and it would just melt their hearts. And he had he, only one requirement: you had to take two photographs the uh, instant photos instant uh-huh. polarized photos and uh, one for them to keep and one for, to take to the office and so we had you know thousands of those pictures of, of families receiving gifts and uh, there's one story about it's one night he, he he did this a few times but he followed the Santa and hid behind the bushes wow. and kind of experienced what was happening there and it was quite emotional for him That's such an amazing story. I'm so glad that everybody in the whole world gets to learn that now. Your dad was a winner, and he certainly carried that over to race boats and race cars. Paul Newman was not alone in that passion, was he? Tell me about your dad as a racer. No, just as we had the chicken chopper that uh, we, we dropped that first drop of chicken, he had the Popeyes offshore racing boat, and uh, he took. A, he's always had a love for boats on the water, and uh, he he just he had a need for speed. So you put those two things together, and you end up offshore powerboat racing. Uh, he did that. He entered it in 1980. Uh, and he raced uh, between there and 1991. Uh, he was a six-time national champion and world champion in that time, which at that time it was a professional sport, and no one that I know of had had six national championships under their belt. So tremendous success that he had in it. And uh, I got a chance to race with him and, uh, starting in 1986, and we have a – a great story in the book where he and I go head-to-head uh, for a whole race uh, in Key West. And it was 200 miles of offshore racing. And he ended up beating me by .13 of a second. 
at the finish line. And it goes to show you that he never gave me anything. Uh, I fight, I fought for everything I have and everything I made of myself. Uh, and he's provided me great direction. And uh, but but he he beat me that day. And uh, one of the most remarkable championship moments that I have in my life. One of the other things that your dad was really a genius at was acquiring talent. Mm -hmm. I mean, my goodness, uh, anybody who drives around sees that Lamar Berry name on billboards mm -hmm. everywhere, but Lamar Berry really got his start working in marketing for your dad, didn't he? No, that's right. Uh, yeah, Lamar was really good. Um, came on at the right time. That's uh, where I love that chicken from Popeyes came from. The love that chicken. Yeah, all the, all those commercials, but uh, really bringing New Orleans uh, to the nation through the media uh, with the the Mardi Gras and the dancing bands on Bourbon Street and and the food and the culture was really brought to life for the world to see. Uh, you know, he was representing New Orleans in a very, very big way while he was promoting his chicken. And he would take pieces of our culture and use it in interesting ways in the marketing. For instance, the free chicken doubloons. <laughs> that was a time. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, you know, like I said, you know, as we said, he does things big. Uh, uh, and so what we, what we did this particular year was... He wanted to, uh, we opened the pot pies on Canal Street, store number 30. That was when it all started. Which is now the flagship store for the entire brand. Exactly. So uh, that re that restaurant, we had a balcony that would protrude out towards Canal Street that would be built for the Mardi Gras parades. And then came the Popeye's doubloon. And what we would do is throw this doubloon uh, off the balcony and off floats. We'd give them bags that throw off of floats. And it was good for two free pieces of chicken right now, free. Didn't have to buy anything. You walk into any Popeye's restaurant, get head them your doubloon and get two pieces of chicken. Wow. Like free money. Yeah. And, uh, and people went crazy. The cops were begging us to stop throwing them. You know, people were climbing the poles and it was, it was just sick and, and and people we ran out of doubloons we had to go back and recycle through the restaurants to keep throwing more doubloons and it was it was wild but i tell you what from that moment on popeyes has been the official chicken of mardi gras it was just a genius move just a genius move and again he knew how to go out there and find the other geniuses my goodness anyone who knows anything about New Orleans food knows the name Warren LaRue. Mm -hmm. Warren was the biscuit guy, for one thing. And you said you were, what, 14 bacon biscuits in a store. The biscuits really changed profitability. It, it actually increased revenue by 25% just the biscuit? 
Yes, I got to tell you, I mean, it's a great story. First of all, Warren LaRuth was one of the first food scientists that 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 I ever was ever exposed to. I think my father was ever exposed to, and I don't even know how much of a thing it was back in that day. I don't think uh, it was. Now it's pretty prominent, but uh, that guy was a genius. And just the way he put food flavors together, the way he understood the science of food and the chemistry of it coming together. Um, but as far as the biscuit's concerned, when my father had told me he wanted to go from a, a little cheap roll that kind of came in uh, in a plastic bag that the bread man dropped off every day to a hand-cut rolled biscuit in the restaurant, in a fried chicken restaurant, or QSR restaurant, yeah. which is designed for quick service and quick turns, I thought he lost his mind. Yeah. And uh, he he said, uh, no, I think I, I want to do this. We need to have the same quality behind that piece of product, that biscuit compared to this roll. This roll is nothing more than a, a napkin to wipe your hands with, you know. Uh, it, it uh, It's not fitting for what we do. So not only did he want to do the biscuit um, and, and get it, rolled out but he wanted everyone to see it uh -huh. so he put displays whenever he could he put displays in all the restaurants of you seeing rolling cutting fresh biscuits which is one of the jobs i had uh but when he did this he rolled it out through the system and it's hard to believe that a that a, a not a side item not a main protein product uh -huh. but a biscuit could have that much influence on the overall business 25 percent you know average volume increase across system wide well it, it became part of the whole tagline. It wasn't just chicken anymore. It actually became Popeye's Chicken and Biscuits. That's the right. biscuits came right into the title of the business, really. You know it's popular when you change the name <laughs> to, to put the product in it. It's so popular, Al. Something that I always try to impress upon people who are not from here, what that chicken brand means to us. The love that the population actually has for you all and the history and the food. It's astounding, isn't it? It really is. You know, it starts with fresh ingredients, and, and then you add these layers of flavor. And what New Orleans food does so well is it, it gives you these dimensions of flavor and these dimensions of taste that it carries you from, uh, you know, what starts with a really wild bite and then just leaves you with this uh, this this flavor in your mouth that I call it comeback flavor. It's just you want to keep coming back for more because it's just it wa makes your mouth water and it makes you want to come back for more. And, uh, you know, not a lot of foods do that. No. And, you know, it all has to do with the flavor and the taste, exactly what we've been talking about all along. And your dad's genius, genius move, maybe the top one of all, was the secrecy and diversified foods and seasonings. Let's talk about that big bump in the road. It's, it's another one of your dad's rules. Now, let me see. Hold on one second. It's rule number seven. You got to have a back door. Let's talk about the back door and what diversified seasonings really did. Diversified foods and seasonings was the back door. Uh, you know, he, he entered into a move was like the goldfish that swallowed the whale uh, with the acquisition of Church's Fried Chicken. And uh, 
We had had about uh, 700 restaurants at the time. They were more than 2,000. And uh, we, uh, you know, uh, there were some savings and loan crisis, and there were some financial structural problems back then. It wasn't just a business thing. It was a a financial situation in the whole world at the time. It was, and I'll tell you, I mean, he was very, very proud of the fact that he didn't close any restaurants in that process, and he had $50 million in the bank, you know, at the time of that situation. And... uh, very proudful of that because a lot of people were going through financial tough times. Yeah. People had leveraged, you know, the buyout of something else. Um, but in that process, Popeye's uh, recipe was declared by a judge a trade secret. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that was was because no one except for him had ever had full exposure of what that recipe was. And, and for that reason, you know, he was awarded... Uh, the recipe, and uh, the franchisees really bought into Popeye's for the purposes of that recipe. It really represented what Popeye's was. So without it, there is no Popeye's, and they all knew that. So then he needed to have a supply agreement with the franchisees in order to supply them that recipe, at least for a period of time. And uh, But regardless, it was always going to be his recipe, and uh, the supply agreement would be determined how far that would go into the future. Now, the, the, the brand is owned by a big international company. It's still really New Orleans Cajun American flavor. Well, that's right. I mean, to this day, uh, I entered into a, uh, a contract with Popeye's um, it was in 2014. It's a 20-year contract to 2034 to supply them with all these recipes, all of the cooked foods, all the red beans and rice in the world are made at a manufacturing plant in Madisonville. The Cajun gravy, Cajun meat, all of the cooked foods are made there. We have a dry blending operation uh, based out of Mobile that does all of the spices and all of the flour-based products. The batter, the poultry batters are all made out of there. The spicy and mild seasonings are made out of there. The biscuit, the key biscuit ingredient uh, is made out of there. Uh, the French fried coating is made out of there. So it just, those things that make up Popeye's today, almost everything you taste has some influence from diversified foods. That's incredible. And of course, your dad, so he was busy with that, but your dad just wasn't a man to rest. He went on to create another brand that you're still successful with today, Copeland's. That's right. Now, Copeland's was founded in 1983. I'm proud to say on November 17th, we'll be 39 years old this year. What a big year this is because it's 50 years for Popeyes and 39 years for Copeland's. That's right. It's a, it's a it's a very big year and we've got a lot to celebrate. You certainly do and I'm just so grateful I live here in New Orleans and I get to celebrate with you. Now, Al, I know that a big focus of your life and your dad's legacy is your commitment to cure Merkel cell carcinoma, the terrible cancer that killed him. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's probably the most heartfelt thing that I do. Uh, the most thing, I, thing I'm most passionate about is, um, so it was a fast-growing cancer, and uh, we found out 
on in October, and then November we had the Thanksgiving celebration. We made a commitment to find a cure for the cancer that he had, and unfortunately, he, he only lasted six months. He died in March, and uh, we uh, we made a commitment to continue to try to find a cure. Uh, so we did uh, very aggressively. Uh, we went and researched uh, the world, and it was only one place that had was even pursuing Merkel cell carcinoma, and it was the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, we said, you know, funded that for a little while, and then we found out we needed to get to home. We needed to get the treatment program here in Louisiana. So we ended up getting some cooperation from uh, LSU Health and Science, and they agreed to work with us. Uh, if we fund it, they'll work with us to open a clinic, try to open a clinical trial for this particular cancer. We were, a long story short, we were successful in getting the trial open, we were successful in getting patients in, and we were successful in, fi in finding the cure. We were successful to, in finding it through the clinical trial, and two and a half years later, that treatment program was uh, uh, FDA approved and moved on to the standard of care for medicine. So today, if anyone gets Merkel cell carcinoma, there's a standard of care treatment for them. That's just Based on incredible. the work we've done. That's such admirable, amazing, amazing work. You know, the number one thing I take away from this whole thing is what a special family you come from and what a family business this remains today. What's happening with the third generation? Who's coming up after you, Al? Tell me about the business today. Well, I'm still young and still kicking. So, <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, I'm gonna. Um, I'm, I'm. I'm really uh, proud of what we've been able to accomplish, and I really give all credit to my team. I mean, they do a great job, and you continue to learn from my dad and hire the right people qualify them, put them in the right spots in order to do the right job. Uh, that's allowed me to be successful in the businesses I pursue. Uh, the, uh, my, the, the next generation really is my children. Uh, right. Allison uh, is leading the restaurant division. Uh, my daughter is a uh, director of purchasing. My, one of my daughters is uh, leading the marketing department. So they're all in the business now, and those three in particular, and they're working very, very well. Uh, they represent, you know what the greatest thing about having family and business is they do the right thing when no one's looking. And it, that means so much that you, know, you can trust that you don't have to worry about the business, uh, that they're, they really care about it as much as you do. Well, how would you say that you approach the family business differently from your dad today? Because, for instance, do you have a little patience, Al? Your dad was pretty impatient, and he changed his mind every day, according to a quote of yours in the book. That's right. Yeah, he had a – he had he, – um, I worked directly for him uh, as a senior vice president and all the way to, you know, six years before he died, I was CEO of his companies. And uh, he would call me one morning and we'd discuss a, an idea that he had. Uh, the next morning he'd call me and ask me how was it coming with that thought. And, and so, of course, I mean, having the business to run – 
I said, well, you know, we've got to put a plan together, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll work on executing the plan. And I thought it was always important that it remained relative. It was always a good idea, but was it relative to what was going on in the moment? And because I had that responsibility of more of the strategic responsibility of the company more than the entrepreneurial role in the company, as much as that is fun, uh, it's helped me to be a more refined leader where some people, my, my people might not always tell you that because I have a lot of his, um, you know, intuition as it relates to that, you know, but he's, uh, but I am more structured. Uh, I, I can see things through uh, maybe to the finish and, and you know, how that might uh get executed is the key word not how it might play out he knew how it was going to play out but get executed is the key this beautiful new book that you have just published one of the things that um is in the introduction it says and i'm quoting from the book that it contains proprietary techniques recipes seasonings and spice blends and as we know the Copelands certainly know how to keep secrets. So what are the secrets that you've spilled in this book? It's 300 pages long. So it was very hard for me to decide what might be the state secrets that you've disclosed for us here. Well, we use a lot of some of the proprietary re uh, seasonings that we use today in Copelands. Uh, we have what's called a house seasoning, uh, a duck spice, a blackened seasoning, and we call a secret spice. Uh, and those seasonings are available to purchase with uh, as as a um, as a side purchase from the book that have never been offered before. And you can buy ingredients to get you a, a similar like flavor, uh -huh. or you can buy those special spices, those proprietary spices, for the first time ever to produce them exactly our way. Uh, the second component that I think is really a secret is we use compound butter for a flavoring and uh, a, a, a butter called, in the recipes in the book, but it's a saute butter. And it's one of the base flavors that you find in a lot of the Copeland's style dishes that are in the book and that you have on the menu today at Copeland's. Uh, so those are, those are two key ingredients that spread across a lot of the items in the book. Well, Al, this has been such an honor and a pleasure for me to have this opportunity to sit down with you. Congratulations on your beautiful, beautiful new book. Papa, you do a great job of representing New Orleans, <laughs> and I was proud to sit down with you. Thank you. Thank you, Poppy. That was Al Copeland, Jr., talking about Secrets of a Tastemaker, the book and its inspiration. His father, the one and only Al Copeland. Owned by Restaurant Brands International and now in its 50th year, Popeyes remains one of New Orleans' finest culinary ambassadors. And for the record, it's not fast food. That chicken is still marinated overnight in those secret seasonings before being hand-breaded and fried delivering that spicy, delicious flavor with every bite. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on your preferred podcast platform. And 
visit poppytooker.com, where we have hundreds more available for your listening pleasure. This podcast was produced by Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb for Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.